Hey, it's great to see everybody. Looks like everybody came to second service to be here at the appropriate time for pulled pork, which is awesome. <laughs> so I've been eating, eating, drinking, breathing, sleeping this for months. And um, I'm really excited that we're going to do these six weeks together. I really believe with all my heart that if you do this six weeks with all your heart, if you come to church and you read the book together and you're in a small group and you discuss it and you really try to get these things in as deep as they can be, it'll, it'll really change your life. I really believe that. I think it'll transform this church and its ability to affect our culture and our city. And I think it'll, I think it'll change people's eternities. I, I really believe that or I would not have lived the way I had to live to get here for the last six months. So I hope you're excited about it. There's also a Kindle version you can get for two bucks if you can't get one out there, um, which is fun. Okay, uh, you'll also see in the pew rack in front of you, there's new Bibles. It turns out that if you, it's illegal to buy the NIV 84. Thank you, Zondervan. You have to buy the NIV 2011. But you, there's a sticker on the back that says, if you don't have a Bible, please take this Bible as High Point's gift to you. And um, so if you don't have a Bible, um, please take that Bible that's in your hand or right in front of you. And the only thing that we ask in return is that you actually read a little bit of it. <laughs> so before we get into the content specifically for week one, I want to ask this question, why Blueprint? Why are we doing this? Why this content? What's going on? And it's, bec- it's partly because we live in a very different era than anybody who has lived before us. Now, that's not because human beings are different. Everybody agrees that human beings are exactly the same as we've been for thousands of years. There's no genetic, functional, actual difference in us with our forefathers. We might be a little better nourished or whatever. It's human society that's changed. It's what the human experience is like. Now, that's radically changed. Um, And if you want to do this for fun after I read each of these seven different explosions, you can say, boom, if you think that that's fun and we can do that. Um, But there's at least seven things. You probably could come up with a few more of things that have just exploded over the last 50 or 60 years that have radically changed human life as we experience it. There's the explosion of knowledge and data. (laughs) Awesome. There's just, it used to be in 1880, you could know everything, every, all human knowledge. The first encyclopedia, that was the whole point. If you read it, you could know everything humans know. know. That's, that's completely ludicrous now, right? Explosion of diversity. For most of, for most of Western history, most people, at least in the last three or four hundred years, have mostly lived around people quite like them. That's not true anymore. People are living more and more around people that are not like them, and that creates Conflicts of values and and things, which is different. There's been an explosion of markets, which is people have so many more choices than they've ever had in, in history before. It used to be the issue related to the idea of choice was that you and I need to make the right choice. Now the most important ethical idea to us in relationship to choice is that we have a choice and there are many choices. There's the explosion of dangers and warnings. Everybody, everywhere, who speaks publicly, especially on television, is filling your life with warnings about catastrophic possible futures, most of them mutually contradictory with each other, expecting you to act immediately. It's maddening. Right? There's an explosion of diversion. Um, you You can engage in entertainment in a way that... You can, you can take in really beautiful stories that can ennoble the human spirit and do some really cool stuff. I mean, I love films, I love reading, but you can also waste your entire life making yourself a smaller human being and much more vacuous by just ingesting, like, chocolate ice cream entertainment. It's a fact. There's the explosion in lifestyles and scripts. There used to be a, a general script that people would, would do unless they had a good reason to deviate from it or some tragedy pushed them out of it. People used to get married to somebody of a complementary gender and have children and pass on life to a new generation and build culture together and create a kingdom, their own family kingdom in which they were, the husband and wife were king and queen. And that script is over. If you insinuate that somebody should do that, you get responses like, don't judge me and who are you to tell me what to do and there's so many possibilities and I don't want to be tied down and blah, blah, blah. The husband is a new ball and chain, right? That's what you get. And then there's the explosion of global competition. 
It's the reason why we over-nurture our children. We have them in 75 different things. We won't let them sleep. It's the reason why we teach, or spend time teaching them everything but the value of God, family, siblings, relating to your mother and father. And it's the reason why they can all play violin and piano and swim and play soccer and play trumpet and skydive and our military class sniper. And I mean, you just go on and on and on. It's because we are terrified. We see global competition. We don't know if there's going to be enough jobs. We'll be be able to invent new things to do in the future. There's millions and hundreds of millions of people are going to get into these markets. What are we going to do? Are our children going to survive? What's going to happen? Is there going to— And that's why our children live such stuck and cluttered lives. We live in a world in which our lives are so impressed upon by these explosions. One more time. So impressed upon by these explosions that it creates a kind of desperation in us. It creates anxiety. I remember one Christian psychologist say the dirty little secret of the Christian church is anxiety. People seem at peace, but they're not. And I would say that's true. I'd also say you can erase the word church and put in society, and it would be just as true. Maybe true. I don't know. You can picture two people at a trailhead. One person who's standing at the sign doesn't really know which way to go, and they're stuck. Because there's so many different options, so many different ways they can go, so many things they're supposed to do. They don't really know what they're supposed to do, and they're kind of stuck there. If they're a type A person, they'll just stand there or drive off and get a guidebook. If they're a type, like a type B person, they're going to they're gonna pick a trail and live in the moment, and, go, and they're, they're just going to get just as stuck. They're just going to get stuck on the wrong mountain without food and water. Or there's the person who's like completely prepared. I can keep up with all this. There's all these explosions. I'm competent to handle this. And so they they put everything in their life they think they could possibly need, and they try to carry that for 50 miles. And they're they're five feet down the trailhead, and they turn and tell their friends, you know, my quads already hurt, and my knees are kind of achy. It's because you're carrying 140 pounds, and you're not—you're never meant to do that. Jesus— spoke about—oh, sorry, that's the right slide. Jesus actually spoke about this very differently than the way we experience it. He didn't speak—he didn't say, follow me, and you can live a stuck and cluttered life. You can live a life full of anxiety, full of desperation, all the way through. It'll be wonderful. He said this, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a lot of modern people that think a yoke is actually the center of an egg. It's not. It's actually the thing you would put on animals to, so that they could pull stuff very similar to what's on a backpack so you can carry stuff. And he, say, he says, my backpack, in that sense, metaphorically mostly related, is it's not just lighter so that you can actually carry its weight. It fits you. See, one of the reasons why we live such stuck, cluttered, and anxious, and desperate lives is because not only is modern cluttered life so heavy, it doesn't fit. It's not designed for human beings as they really are. And it's a miss. So it's like the backpack that's too heavy and rocked a little bit to the right. Have you ever carried one of those? It's very unhelpful. So the purpose of Blueprint, then, is if you recognize that we live in this really complicated society. I mean, we, we live in a very complicated moment. How do, you, how do you deal with something that you've got to do that's enormously complicated in a way that doesn't create an enormous amount of clutter and stuckness and anxiety and desperation? And one of the ways that that has been done historically, when you did something as complicated as building a building like this, is you made a Blueprint. You took the thing that was going to exist that you can't keep all in your head at one time and you simplified it as simple as possible. It's a simplified plan of a complex action. It's as simple as it can possibly be, but not any simpler than that. So if, if you look at this one, these are um, blueprints from High Point Church. David Miller said to me when we came up with the title, he's like, you know, there's not blueprints anymore. It's all CAD drawings now. I was like, thank you, Captain Jerk. But... <laughs> But the original building of High Point, not the Micah Center, but the main building, actually was like apparently the last blueprint of all time. And this is from the building. We were going to put the uh, sewage system on there, but John didn't think it would be appropriate. But if you look at this one for the floor plan, it looks pretty complicated, right? Nobody would look at that and be like, oh, Nick, that's perfectly simple. That's really good. I could make a little aphorism out of that and carve it on a wooden bench. I mean, nobody would say that, right? But if you sat down with this and you looked at it, 
you could get a sense of like, okay, the gym's going to be there. We're going to have classrooms down this hall. We've got this here. This is going to be connected to that. Yeah, I get it. I get, I get how it works together. I get how it fits. And that cannot, that can, that's a lot less overwhelming than trying to imagine how you're going to build the building with every detail in the perfectly right order so you don't get anything wrong. That's impossible. That's why we have designs. That's why we have blueprints. We need, when we're ever going to do something complicated, we need to simplify things as much as we can, but not simpler. Um, you can call the concept irreducible complexity. That is, how much you can reduce something before it doesn't work anymore. You want to stop before you get there. As simple as possible, but it still works. A mousetrap is a classic example. It has seven working parts, and if it's out, that's actually not the simplest way to trap mice. Apparently, the simplest way to trap mice is the five-gallon bucket co- Coke can method. But if you don't know about that, just ask Google. Um, but, th- but this, if you take out any one of these parts, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't catch mice. Now, it can be argued that these actually don't catch mice very well, but um, the point is, is that it needs the springs. It needs all of these parts. And in that sense, that's kind of how we've designed the design blueprint, which is how do you simplify the Christian life lived out? As simple as you can possibly simplify it, but not simpler. You know, you, you don't want to be the guy who goes, you know what, I'm going to simplify Christianity. Let's sit down and decide which three of the Ten Commandments we're going to do. <laughs> right? There, there are certain simplifications that actually are unhelpful. I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who said, I wouldn't give two figs for simplicity on that side of complexity, but I would give my right arm for simplicity on the far side of complexity. And you can break it down into three categories. We were made to, and we've been called to connect, grow, and serve. Relational, developmental, and actional. We were made to connect with God and with other people. We were made to grow by understanding the real message of Christian faith, which most of us don't really know. At least not, we might know it notionally, but we don't know it in our feelings. We don't react gospelly. And we need to know the Bible. We need to understand God's revelation, what's in there. And we need to serve. We need to self-sacrificially serve, not just ourselves, but the unit of people in which God has put us in for their good, with whom our fates are tied together. And we have to take the message of God's reconciliation and redemption to the whole world. God, where God's appointed means to do that. That's what he says. That's as simple as I can make it, and not simpler. Now, there's a number of reasons why we're doing this. We want everybody to hear the gospel. We want everybody to have a chance to build their life on a foundation that's unstuck and uncluttered that's on the actual gospel that's meant to free us. Whether you're here because somebody invited you and you don't really know it, or you don't really think it makes any sense, or whether you think you've been a Christian or you have been a Christian for a long time, but your life is just as anxious and just as desperate and just as stuck and just as cluttered as anybody else's. We also want to lay this foundation in our church so that we can be an unstuck and uncluttered church together built on the foundation of the gospel. And we want, I want everybody in this church to be able to help anybody else they meet in their life. We're not just here so that we can connect, grow, serve. We are here to help anybody God puts us in touch with, in contact with, in a circle of influence with. We want to help them live an unstuck and uncluttered life, built on the foundation of the gospel, connecting to God, growing, and serving. Now, week one, connecting with God. You can boil it down to this. You were made to have a relationship with God. You're created to have a relationship with God. There are longings in you that will only be fulfilled when you have a relationship with God or when that relationship is set right. You are made to be an eternal being who bears and possesses and experiences the everlasting life of God. You are meant to have a life that was full of the life of God. You are meant to actually have a relationship with God and through that relationship to actually come back into right relationship with everything else. When we come into relationship with God, that relationship begins to set us right with other people and the created world that we're meant to be in right relationship as well. Now, there's five things related to this that we want to talk about in not that rapid succession. The first is, what does it even mean to have a relationship with God? What does that even mean? People say that, 
What does that mean? You may have heard Christians say stuff like that, like, do you know Christ? And I have a relationship with God. And I have a relationship with God. Do you have a relationship with God? And, well, I don't believe in organized religion. Well, Christianity isn't a relationship, not a religion, right? Now, I, I call that Christian demagoguery, but it's actually—all those statements are absolutely true, right? You may be from some ministry where you're taught to say them. It's fine. They're true. The problem is, is that I'm a relatively analytical person, and analytical people tend to focus not on the similarities between things, but on their differences, because by understanding the differences and differentiating them, you can find ways to create improvement. And so when I hear somebody say, well, I have a relationship with God, I'm kind of like, okay, relationship with God as I've experienced it, or as you're describing it, and every other relationship I've ever heard of or had. There are some really big differences, such that the key things that I would think are like the main criteria for relationship, like certain the other person exists. You get to see them or experience them with your five senses in interpretationally sure ways, right? They talk back a good bit in conversations. Like, these are the sorts of things that I think of as like the key components of relationships. And so when somebody says, you can have a relationship with God, you're made to have a relationship with God, there's a place in me that goes, hold on there, tiger. Um, I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay. But here's how it's fairly simply broken down. And I don't know why it took me until I was like 36 to be able to explain it this way. In the Bible, God is described as a person. God is not described as an energy field, an ultimate reality, a collective psychological consciousness energy, a karmatic something. God is described as a person, that is, a being that that knows, feels, acts, chooses, has a will. All the necessary philosophical components for personhood, God possesses. In fact, if we're creating God's image, the Bible actually argues the reason you're a person is because God was first a person. The Bible describes God as a person. Now, most of us think that we are persons. That's one of the reasons why we call each other people, right? And so, I I mean, I've been told by my mother that I'm not acting like a person, but I know, but generally speaking, I think of myself as a person and so do you, right? Now, If anything transpires between two persons, it is by definition relating. That's what relating is. It's something that transpires between two persons. And so if you have two persons who are in any way, even if the main way is one is ignoring the other and pretending they don't exist, right? Kind of like a teenager with their dad, right? Even if that's What's happening between them? You've got two persons who are relating. What have you got there in a logically deductive sense? You've got yourself a relationship. Now, given there are many differences between that relationship and your other ones, some of them you won't particularly care for, like the hiddenness of God, right? The curse of sin has created a separation practically between us and God such that God does not transgress it in certain ways at this point in time. God therefore seems radically hidden, and we don't particularly care for that. I'm with you. Okay? However, there are also some really great things about it. That is, God isn't as boring as you are and me. I mean, can you imagine trying to enjoy me forever? Like, some of you have been going to this church for like six weeks, and you're like, oh my gosh, could you just talk about something else and be moderately interesting? I only talked for 15 minutes. It's been six weeks, okay? You are going to enjoy God as infinitely interesting forever. The same thing that makes God a consuming fire, the same thing that makes God—God's wrath make sense— The same thing that makes him consuming is the same thing that makes him compelling. His holiness, his greatness, his enormity, his intricacies, his beauty. Those things that he will not destroy in himself to become what we want him to be, that which creates wrath is also what creates glory, beauty, enjoyment. The thing that makes him consuming is the same thing that makes him compelling. That's either really good or really bad news depending on how we'll relate to it. 
Where's my little thing? It's in my pocket. Even in John 15, the way Jesus talked about this is he said, you guys have been called my servants, but I call you my friends because you know my business. That is, our relating is sufficient that I, the category I use is friend, Jesus says, with his followers. In fact, if you look at almost all the things that Christians are called in relationship to God in the whole New Testament, and in basically the whole Bible, they're all relational categories. Sons and daughters, heirs, servants, friends, all of them. So if that's true, then the question is, well, what kind of relationship is it? If it's a relationship that's really unlike my other ones, what kind of relationship is it? So some of you, if you've been around Christianity a while, you've heard of the Romans Road. Anybody ever heard of that? It's like you take the book of Romans, and there's like some verses you can hop through and help lead somebody to, to Christ, which is great. I love the Romans Road. In fact, actually, that's actually what led me to Christ. At summer camps and pastors that with me. It's cool. But, so I, here's the new, here's the John Road, okay? What kind of relationship in it is it? Well, let's let John tell us, okay? And so in John 3, 14 to 17, it says this. Jesus is talking. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That is, in his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. For God so loved the world that he gave—oh, sorry. So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So that's the category Jesus uses in John's gospel. Eternal life. That's the kind of relationship this is. It's eternal life, right? For God so loved the world— that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, right? Okay, so you might be saying, well, Nick, that's actually not all that much more descriptive. Okay, so listen to what else Jesus says about the life that comes to those who believe in him and belong to him and have that relationship. He says in John 10, a little while later, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I, literally on the other hand, right, have come that they may have a life and have it to the full, or sometimes translated have it abundantly. That's where churches get the name abundant life church, right? It's from this verse. That is, that the life Jesus gives in the relationship that we're meant to have with God, its duration is everlasting. It's eternal life, right? But what's its quality? Is it a narrow, bigoted, small-minded, religious, separatist? No, his argument is, I've come to give you life that's full. Whatever you picture as the barrel that is your life, picture it running over. Probably not in the ways you're picturing it, but the life you are meant to have and what it's meant to mean and be. He's come to bring life that's not only everlasting in its duration, but overflowing in its quality. And then lastly, exactly how does that come about? He says in John 17, he's about to get himself killed for us. And this is what he says in his prayer just before he does that. After this, Jesus said, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He's speaking there about his death and resurrection. For you granted him, that is the son, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So now, now John's going to define what he means by eternal life. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So in John's gospel, what kind of relationship is this? Here's here's what kind it is. It's a relationship in, in which you so know and are unified with God himself that you participate in a relational knowing of the infinitely interesting, beautiful, and great God himself— in which the life produced by that is maximally full and of infinite duration. That's all. You got any other relationships like that? Because I don't. There's some things that bother me about this relationship. This is not one of them. The next thing you can ask, though, is, so, okay, wait. How do you, how can you know, or how can you enter into, or how can you have that kind of a relationship with God? Is it, is it vague? Are we supposed to make it up, or does he tell us, right? And so this is the last verse in the, in the John trail, okay? And that is, he gets, he's getting to the end. John only has 21 chapters, and in chapter 20, he basically, for, the, for people who don't read so good, okay? This is like the Zoolander verse of John's gospel, and he says, 
But these, that is all the stuff I've written in the first 20 chapters, all this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he's like, the life that is intimately knowing God in a meaningful way, though very different than you're used to, of absolute fullness and of infinite duration, that thing is accessed by the thing that, that you have to do is you need to believe. You need to put the full weight of your trust in Jesus, who was crucified for you, who rose to demonstrate that he'd accomplished it, who lives for you, who has come to save you, and who offers you eternal life. Okay, now, the difficulty people have with this is for most modern people, if they're going to accept the idea that there is a God who draws people into a relationship with him and awards some and does not reward or, may, or punishes others, on what criteria could that possibly— it can't be belief. It can't be whether or not you accept it. It's got to be something moral. It's got to be, be performance-based. Otherwise, it's just radically unfair. And I understand that, that sentiment. It's the same one I had and still have some days when I'm not thinking through the gospel straight. It seems just crazy. In fact, virtually every religious view or spiritual view that you're ever going to find is either going to believe in that or some kind of non-God-centered self-improvement. It's either going to be religion, uh, like, let's be good enough, or it's going to be advice. You can be better. Do these things. It's really only the gospel that says, you need something desperately. God has done it for you, and you need to accept it. And the difference— the greatest binary difference of ones and zeros in the entire human race is whether or not you will accept it or not accept it. Now you're like, okay, so now I'm going to—let me defend that notion, okay? Because it's in, it is the most important notion in relationship to you coming to have a relationship with God, which I think the, the stakes are huge. And that is, imagine you were, you were doing marriage counseling, okay? I get to do this a good bit. Hopefully you'll never have to. Um, and a, a couple comes in, and they're upset with each other. Now, you could say a lot of stuff good about each person that comes into the room. Sometimes there are people that you really like, and you're kind of like, why are you not getting along? And so you could say a lot of things about the man, a lot of things about the woman that are positive. But what you ultimately have to get down to is what's wrong, right? If we're going to talk about a restored relationship, you've got to ask, what's wrong? And they're going to have to agree. You're going to have to get through at least three things if these two are going to get out of there in one piece, right? They've got to agree on three things. What happened, how they're going to get past what happened, and how they're, how they're on, or on what criteria are they going to move forward, right? And so if you've got a situation where you've got an offending spouse, and I, at some point, somebody's going to have to say, I did this. I'm sorry. At some point, there's got to be some recognition. There's got to be some like, oh yeah, this happened, right? And then something has to happen with that. And here's the problem. The person who screwed it up, if it's mainly one person's fault, which isn't often true in marriages, but it's always true between us and God, is the person who did it actually can't fix it. Right? Because when the, the person who finally agrees to what's happened, they come out of the personal delusion and they're like, yeah, oh, stink, I did that, right? Okay, I'm really sorry. Okay, great. You've got recognition. You've got apology. Has anything happened yet? Not really. That, that does, does that make it better because the person said, oh, I did that, I'm sorry? Does that make it better? It doesn't make it better. There's another thing that's really important that has to happen. The other person has to say, I forgive you. It's okay. Right? What that means is they are agreeing to pay the moral tab that the other person ran up. Because somebody's going to pay the cost of this offense, and it actually can't be the one who committed it. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is essentially that somebody rings up a moral debt that somebody has to pay for, and the non-offending person says, I will take care of it. I will accept it on myself so that we could—I forgive you. If the other person has to earn their way out of it, what you do not have is a relationship of intimacy. 
When there's offense, intimacy or real relationship can only be restored through forgiveness. That's one of the reasons why Christianity always has as its centerpiece forgiveness, that we are a forgiving people, even if we're too forgiving. Like, I don't believe in Christian pacifism, but if you're going to be wrong, in my view, that's an okay way to be wrong, being too forgiving. If you read the Bible at all. Because that has to happen, and it cannot be done by the offending party. And then what happens when the offended party says, I forgive you? What does the other person have to do? They have to receive it. They have to accept the fact that the other person has paid the price. They can never undo that. And, and they have to be brought back together because the offending person has to accept it and not resent that person for forgiving them. That's how relationships are restored. Now, when you recognize that, and if you accept that you're the offending person, what does that mean that you just did if that was to come back together? I have to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, right? The other person has to forgive me and take the pain and debt and moral problem of that on themselves. And then I have to accept that, that they've done that. When that happens, the relationship can be restored, right? Okay, so in the Bible, what does Jesus say you have to do to come? He says repentance and faith. Get it? Repentance, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I recognize what I did. God, I take the moral debt on myself. You objectively know I did it because I sent the person of my son to earth as a human to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, and then rise from the dead and to tell you that's why he did it so that you can objectively know God's answer when you say, oh, stink, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You can absolutely know objectively the answer is yes. Yes. And then what do you say? I accept that. I accept that you did that for me. When you realize that that's the way relationships happen, when you realize that the Bible says the main thing God is doing is restoring a relationship with you, then, then religion or knowing God or having a relationship, it couldn't function on any, any other way. I mean, we go around thinking that, like, how could it function that way? It can't function any other way and be a relationship. And here's what we need to recognize about this that's so important. Here's what happens, you know what happens actually in most marriage counseling situations where there's a clear offending spouse and a clear non-offending spouse? Do you know what usually happens? It's the offending spouse that demands apology. The offending spouse says, yeah, yeah, I slept with that guy, but you know, you've been mean to me for years and neglecting me, and like, somehow it becomes a narrative about the person who did all the offending being a victim. Even if you know just darn well it's crazy. But to them, it's so real. They're just like, and then he did this, and then I didn't, and then, and, and it's kind of like, and what that person wants is the, they want the other person to give up their integrity to restore the relationship. They want this person to come morally down to their level so that they can have a restored relationship. But what good is that relationship? Let's have a restored, toxic, lying relationship. Please, can we have that? Don't you want that? Here's, here's the problem that we have. We're sitting there with God, sort of in the counseling thing, and God is exactly who he wants to be. He didn't mistakenly get his character. He's not debating whether or not he wants to be who he is. He's been who he is for eternity past. Thank you very much. And the last thing that he is going to do is be somehow mollycoddled and manipulated into becoming less honorable and truthful and less himself so that we in our sinful delusion can pull him down to our level so that we'll stop being mad at him like some kind of prepubescent 12-year-old. It's not going to happen. It's called the doctrine of holiness. The thing that makes God consuming is the thing that makes God compelling. When Isaiah 6 came around, Isaiah was like in the temple and God was calling a prophet and God shows up and he's enormous. It's only the very bottom of his like garment that, that Isaiah can even see because God's demonstrating how big he is. And there's these angels kind of flying around God, singing, right? Do you, it's a one-word song. Do you remember the song? 
it was this, right? It was love, 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 what the world, right? You can't take me seriously doing that. Okay, so that's not what they sang. It's not what they sang. They sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was who is and who is to come. He's been holy from eternity past. He's holy right now. He's going to be holy forever. All you can see is the very bottom of his toes. He's way more, and you better not think you can play with him. Like, oh, I'm, I'm the victim. You've been so mean to me. I didn't have an opportunity, right? He's, we're delusional, the Bible teaches. Our sin isn't just, oh, I made a mistake. Because if you say mistake, you know what you really think? You think like you know your mistake, and, and you know you did that wrong, but you know you're past it because you know it because it's a mistake. The whole assumption of that word is, is that you're intellectually past it even if you messed up. That's not what sin is. Sin is a toxic level of delusionalness in us in which we, we're, we're mad at God and we want him to come down to where we are or we're going to be mad at him and we're, or he's, we're going to say he doesn't exist or something. And that is not the way it's going to play out. The way it's got to play out is when we go, we come to a realization where we go, wait a second, this is totally wrong. I'm totally wrong. And we turn to God and we go, I can't fix this, can I? And we know that the answer is no. You, you can't fix this. There's no way to take responsibility for what we've done to each other and to him and to creation he's put us in a relationship with. There's no way to do that. And all you can say is, will you forgive me? To which God has gone beyond out of his way to make sure that the answer you hear is a resounding yes. At which point you grab it with both hands and you pull it in as tight as you can and you accept it, you accept it, you accept it, and then it changes your whole personality and you are now together and now you're going to move forward on the basis of that. That the relationship is renewed. You have a new identity. You're a different person. Your relationship is what it wasn't before but is now and you're going to walk out of here totally different than you came in. Right? Another way to think about it is this. Let's say in a non-gender normal way, there was a, a, a bride and a groom that are going to get married, and the groom plans everything. He, you know, his, his wife is either a complete space cadet or she's finishing her thesis or something, and he's like, I'm going to plan everything. He plans everything. He does everything for her. Is there anything in the entire wedding he can't do for her? Right? It really turns out there's only one thing that he absolutely can't do for her. Yeah, I do, Right? He can do everything else. He can even make it fun to say the I do. And he can even, like, be really nice to her so she wants to say it. But she has to say it. Or it's not a wedding. Turns out. Says the princess bride. (laughs) That's why salvation rests on you believing in Jesus. It's because God, the groom, in this metaphor— and somewhat literally in its use in the Bible, recognizes how dysfunctional we are, recognizes how problematic we are. He wants to be maximally generously generous and gracious with us, and so he does, as it were, everything. But morally and truthfully and honorably, there is one thing he can't do for you. He can't actually say and mean the I do for you. And that's why all of salvation, an eternal relationship with God, depends on that and that alone. Okay, I gotta go a little quicker here. So what happens if you start a relationship with God? If you look on page 40 in your book, there's, there's a little figure there and it has four things on it. Justification, sanctification, union with Christ, and, um, sorry, Authority in Christ, right? Sorry. Um, when you believe in Jesus and you are what the Bible calls in Christ, that is, you've trusted in Christ and he's done his work in you, there's four things that happen. One is justification, which you can understand it this way. You are accepted in Christ. One way, the, 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 the sort of classic way to say this is you're counted just as if you've never sinned. 
but in Christ, you are accepted. That is, you can just flat right now, you can just stop feeling like you've got to earn your acceptance from other people. In Christ, you are accepted. Two, you are sanctification. That is, you are free from the oppressive power of sin. You don't have to sin anymore. Now, you'll still be tempted to sin. You may even want to sin because of reasons we'll get into in other sermons and have before. But the point is, is that you don't have to. You are free. Sin, in the words of John Wesley, remains, but it doesn't reign. It's not in charge anymore. The third is, Christ is with you. And the fourth is that you have authority. You have the right to be who God has made you to be and to do what God has told you to do. Which, when you get on to the, to the last one, then if you say, okay, so then if I believe it, how do I live that out? How do I live out connected with God or related to God? How do I do that, right? And the answer is, is pretty simple. Um, when you ask people the question, how do you live out a relationship with God? What you'll hear from a lot of people is what they'll say is, I try to please God. That is both the perfect answer and possibly the most confusing answer possible. It's totally right. Awesome. Why? Because you can go back to moralism and you can say, Jesus has done so much for me. I have to, I mean, I have to earn that. I have to make up for that. I mean, I'm, I'm in such a debt to him. For, I mean, I mean it's, it's sort of like the resentment that comes when somebody does something for you. It's like, oh, have you ever heard somebody say, oh, they gave me this gift. Now I've got to do, right? Now I've got to do something for them. All they, you know, my kid had a graduation party and they got a really nice gift. Now we got to get a really nice gift for them. Kind of defeats the purpose of what a gift is. If you have to get something for them, they didn't give you a gift, they made an investment. Right? Yeah, we try to please God, but do we pl try to please God out of pride because we're the awesome people who please God as opposed to everybody else? Or out of fear? Well, I better please God to stay in the— because now that we've reconciled, I better live up to all of his demands. Right? That's, that's moralism. That's religion. That's not—that's— that is the—that is, I try to please God in a way that will kill you. It will lead you right back to stuck, right back to cluttered, right back to desperate, right back to anxious. The answer is, who are you? If you're in Christ, you have a certain identity. You're free. You're accepted. Someone's with you. You have authority. How would one live if they believed that? Right? Now you could say, well, I'm a Christian, so now I don't gossip about people anymore because Christians don't gossip. Well, yeah, well, that's not going to work very well. I'll just tell you right now. The reason why a Christian can not gossip is because gossip is all about approval. I will throw that person's humanity under the bus to ingratiate myself to you so that you approve of me. Gossip's all about approval. And as long as you need those people's approval, you can believe that gossip is wrong and you'll just call it a prayer request or something. Right? Gossip ends when you don't need their approval anymore because you actually believe you are approved of in Christ. In Christ, you are 100% radically accepted by God. Who else's approval do you actually need? And the, the beauty is, the minute you realize you need their approval, the proper gospel response isn't, oh, I'm sinning. The go proper gospel response is, I don't believe the gospel. <laughs> I don't actually believe that I'm accepted. That's why I'm doing this. And instead of feeling terrible, you can say, I need to believe the gospel. I need to have faith. Right? Same thing with sin not reigning. If, if sin, if you really believe that sin was like a slave master to you, it had you bound, tied up, it was slowly killing you and smiling at you while you did it, and then Jesus set you free from it, what would your attitude toward that thing be? Right? Because most Christians, I've said this before, most Christians say they're struggling with their sin, but they're really snuggling with it. They love their slave driver that was killing them. You don't actually believe, you believe that maybe your sin was getting you crossways with God, but that's really unfortunate that he doesn't appreciate that thing you like. You don't actually believe that that thing is 
morally ugly, deeply wicked, destructive of others, tearing down the fabric of reality, a rejection of everything that's true, a destruction of your own humanity, taking you out of a relationship with God, yourself, every other human being, and all of the created order. You don't believe that. The minute you believe that and you see it for the slave driver that it was, the oppressor that it was, you'll be like, I I don't want anything to do with you. You see, overcoming sin, it's just faith. That's all it is. It's just faith. Um, there's this story of a guy who went to a Billy Graham crusade and accepted Christ. And, and after he accepted Christ, he, he'd been a sort of a raging alcoholic, and he like, got over it and wasn't an alcoholic anymore. And he was a doctor, and everybody thought his life was going to implode. And one of, his, one of his other doctor friends who was a surgeon came to him, and he said, listen, let me, let me ask you I'm trying to put together this whole religion thing you got and how that helped you with your drinking, and I really admire that it helps you with your drink because I saw you try all this stuff before you were Christian, and then I saw this work. It's unbelievable. He's like, let me just ask you something. Else. We have these terrible days at work, right? And are you telling me that something has happened so that if you had a string of like the worst days possible and you came into your office and somebody just put a bottle of gin on your table and nobody was here, you were all by yourself, your door was locked, there were no cameras, nobody could see you, it was just you, you telling me that you're sure you wouldn't take a drink? And he said, he said, that's actually a pretty good question. He's like, but everything in that thing you just said is hypothetically possible, possibly true, except for one. Because I belong to Jesus, I know that actually I'll never be alone the rest of my life. The idea that I could be alone is just a nonsensical idea to me. You see, if you don't, if you're, if you don't believe in God, then you don't, you believe you can be alone. If you are a moralist, or if you believe in Christianity as a moralistic religion, you believe that God always sees you in the negative sense. Like, oh, he's always looking. I can't even change, you know? (laughs) When you become a Christian— when you believe the, the good news that Jesus actually taught, in the spirit he taught it, for the ends he taught it, that will turn from a statement of terrible news of somebody looking over your shoulder and reading your emails while you're just trying to do your job to a, this glorious idea that no matter who throws you into what prison where or who leaves you or who rejects you or who hates you or who doesn't accept you or what power you lose or what control you lose, you will never be without Christ. You will never be alone, and that will be a joy to you. It'll change the way you live. You see, we could go through the other one too, but the point is, people think that we start by faith, we restore it, and then we walk out of the counseling office, and then we like, we gotta act like a Christian. We're gonna, we're gonna be good. No, you're not gonna be good. You're gonna be awful. You're not done sinning. In your heart, you could be like, 100%, I'm done sinning. And you should be. That's what faith looks like. Like, I'm never going to—and then you're going to screw up, and you're going to be like, oh! This is what Paul says in Romans 1.17. He says, for the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God, you are accepted, is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. If you're intellectually tired, hang in here for two minutes. This, this, is, this could be very helpful, okay? What that says is, as a Christian, right down to the bottom foundation, you will never do anything else besides repent and believe. Anything you do that's truly Christian will simply be the exercise of faith. It will be you saying, if I belong to Christ, what would somebody who is who I am do? And will I have the courage, i.e. will I have faith? Will I do it? Will I embrace it? Will I say, this is who I am? I could not be otherwise. That's all it is. It's not like, oh, do I have enough points? And is God going to like this? Is this good enough? No, it's just, who am I? What would somebody with this identity do? From Faith is from first, last. In fact, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, even the Old Testament was just the same as this. The righteous live by faith. That is, in that context, it's the righteous. That is, those who are righteous in God. How do they act righteous? How can they be righteous? Are they just morally fantastic? No, they live by faith. They live 
under God their whole lives. They act out of that identity. They, they act out of faith everywhere, every place. Everything you'll do is repentance and faith. That's all it'll ever be. Why? Because at the bottom, what is the whole thing you're doing? It's a relationship with God. You are, every action, you are relating to God. Every thought, you are relating to God. Every step, everything, every choice, every new thing, you're relating to God. And therefore, ultimately, everything at his bottom is whether or not you're moving towards him or away from him. Whether you're embracing what he's done for you or whether you're not. It's always repentance and faith in a hundred different idioms. If, if we want to get to a place where we're really living a life that's unstuck and uncluttered. We're really living in a place where the anxiety and the desperation of the complexity of life is kind of beginning to move away. It has to start with at the very core, at the very bottom. The heart and the root is that God has called you and made you for a relationship with him. It can only happen through faith because that's how broken relationships are restored. Only he can pay the cost of forgiveness. Only you can say the I do, say I was wrong, and then embrace the forgiveness that's offered and allow the relationship to be restored. And then you don't do it by becoming something else or moving off on a different principle than what you started. You, you grow into learning who you now are in Christ. And then everything that you do is by faith. Trusting God, believing in Him, putting the full weight of your trust in Him as you step out and act out who He has said you really are in Christ. You were made to connect with God, to have a relationship with Him. And you were made to do it by faith from first to last. Let's pray. Father, um, please help us to trust you and believe in you. Please help us to see that at the very heart of what we're doing, we have to have a relationship with you. Yeah, it's very different than our other relationships. In some ways, it's more difficult for us now. Many of those ways we believe are going to pass away. In some ways, it's much more amazing in ways that we still haven't fully experienced yet. We pray that you'd help us to have the boldness and the courage and the clarity of thought to walk out of the delusion of sin and into the relationship you've prepared for us. Pray in his name. Amen.